I want you to imagine for a moment that you're not here this morning, not here in Otley, uh, not here at Bethel, but in fact you're on a luxury cruise liner, cruising the Atlantic Ocean, drink in hand, feet up, enjoying the journey with all your friends around you. You're so glad that you booked this holiday, you really needed this break, uh, and you're so looking forward to how all that time away on RMS Titanic. Yes, you're on board a ship that in a few hours will sink to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. The iceberg has struck, the ship is already sinking, but you've been too busy playing shuffleboard uh, to notice that it's happened. Suddenly, someone in a uniform comes up to you and your friends. The ship is sinking! The ship is sinking! The ship's hit an iceberg! You need to get onto the lifeboats now! Well, some of your friends, they just burst out laughing. Oh, this is a joke. Everything looks fine. What nonsense. Other friends believe the man in the uniform, but come to a different conclusion about what to do. Sinking? Right, well, let's try and climb as high as we possibly can on the ship. That'll be the safest place. Oh, we're sinking. Right, let's jump off the ship and swim to New York. That will save us. Or sinking. Right, well, let's start an awareness campaign against the evil of icebergs. That's what we should do. Some of them, of course, just want to apportion blame. It's not my fault. The stupid captain, whoever he is, he, he's to blame. I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. You suddenly notice that that friend looks suspiciously like one of the navigation crew. What do you do? The man in the uniform is insistent. Your only hope is the lifeboats. But what about those other options? Could they really work? Is there really a problem at all? Is there really only one way to escape this oncoming disaster? Well, Paul here is doing the job of the man in the uniform. We saw last week that he's been appointed by God to preach the good news. Escape is possible. But there's some bad news first. You're on a sinking ship. So he needs to do two things in these early chapters. He needs to convince us that we are really are in terrible danger. And he begins to do that in this chapter. He also needs to convince us that what we need is righteousness by faith alone. That is our one means of escape. That is our lifeboat. You see, there's no point in convincing us of the problem only to see us jump off and try and swim to safety ourselves. He needs to show us that the only avenue of escape is faith alone. <coughs> and he's going to do that in the coming chapters. So, <clears throat> first he's going to show us that we really are in trouble, that we have a huge problem. Now we're going to look under uh, this in three headings this morning. I've realised I've not got them on the screen, um, so you just have to uh, listen carefully. The first heading is the root of all evil. The root of all evil, verses 18 to 21. Let me, let me read that uh, to us again. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes... Namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God 
or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. We're told here that God's wrath is being revealed. What is God's wrath? It is righteous anger against sin. We're told here ungodliness and unrighteousness. But God's anger is not like our anger, which is fickle and selective. His anger is righteous. It's a pure, settled, unbiased anger. Let me put it this way. God doesn't have temper tantrums. When he is angry, it's deserved and wholly right. It's the same reaction to the horror that is sin. You notice here as well in verse 18 that his anger is in the present tense. Now, we normally think about God's wrath and anger as perhaps something belonging to the end. And in one sense, it is, isn't it? It will happen finally uh, when Jesus returns and God's wrath is poured out. But we're told here that God is already pouring out his wrath on the world. Now, this isn't the kind of thing that you write in a post about this. It's not very cheery stuff. But it's important that we notice that judgment is happening now. What we'll see this morning is evidence that God's wrath is being poured out on earth. As we look at our society mired in sin, it's not so much that it's ripe for judgment, it's that it's already under God's judgment. In a world of war, hatred and pride and all sorts of sin, this is evidence that God not only will judge the world, but that he is judging the world right now. The sort of flip side of this would be, his blessing to the world would be, that things aren't so bad. But actually, the things that we see, the sin running wild in our world, is evidence that we're already under God's judgment. But what is it that we're doing that's so bad? Well, we're willingly involved in a conspiracy to overthrow God. We're even out to convince ourselves and others that he doesn't even exist. We don't want God so that we pretend that he's not there. We suppress, literally hold down the truth that is plain right in front of us. You see, people talk about searching for God, don't they? But our passage says that God is not hiding. Actually, God has made himself plain to people. God has shown ample proof to the world that he is there. And if you think about it, every culture in the world has some underlying idea of God. Now, people have tried over time to erase that knowledge, but it's still there across the world. Atheists with a capital A are actually a tiny minority on a global scale. Most people are, have some concept of a God. And even if you think about it, atheists have to define themselves in opposition to the basic view that everybody else has. You see, we have evidence that God is there, that he's divine, that he's powerful. What's the evidence according to our passage? Well, he's made it plain, in verse 20, by the world around us, by what we see. The beauty of a night sky, the complexity of the human eye, the joy and love of friendship. These are gifts that God has given to let us know that he's there. The problem is what we do with that knowledge. God has shown himself to us, but Paul says we suppress the truth. Either we deny it altogether or we twist it into something else. Even though we know deep down that there must be someone out there, someone divine, someone powerful, we don't live our lives like that, naturally. 
We don't honour God. Literally, it means to glorify God. We don't give thanks to God. Instead, our hearts and our minds twist God into something else. We know there is a God, but we swap him for something else. We know deep down that we should honour and glorify God, but instead we seek to honour and glorify ourselves. We make God fit into our world rather than trying to fit into God's world, if you like. We make God in our own image. And this is the root of evil. Not money, that's a misquote, isn't it? Root of all kinds of evil. But the real root of evil is this. The rejection of God. The suppression of God that we might promote ourselves. (coughs) This is sin with a capital S. Sometimes you get sin and you get sins, don't you? Well, this is sin. The de-godding of God. And making him into something else. Whether that be non-existent. Or or a statue that we carry around with us, as people do in parts of the world. Or just a me God that sort of agrees with everything that I think and everything that I want. This sin, capital S, is the reason for God's wrath on the human race. And it causes him to rightly judge us. And what we see now, in the next uh, few verses, is God's present tense judgment on the world. The next thing that we see is the terrible cycle of ever-increasing sin. The terrible cycle of ever-increasing sin. It's in verses 22 to 32. Let me uh, read them to us. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonouring of their bodies among themselves. We'll pause there. What it's saying here is that we ourselves have set ourselves against God. We individually and as the human race suppress the truth. And so God judges us. And this is what one commentator calls the terrible cycle of ever-increasing sin. Think of it a bit like the book of Judges. I don't know if you uh, looked into that book. We we did it a few uh, years ago. If you remember, in the book of Judges, there's a cycle that goes on. The people abandon God and sin. So God hands them over to their enemies. Their enemies then become their masters and oppressors. And then he raises up a judge to rescue them. I don't know if you've ever wondered, though, in the book of Judges... What would happen if God didn't step in? What would happen if he didn't raise up a judge? Well, what would happen is things would get worse and worse and worse and worse, wouldn't they? As they're handed over to their enemies. And sin more and are handed over more to their enemies. You see, here we see the people sin, we sin. And God judges us not by handing us over to our physical enemies but by handing us over to sin. God judges here by handing sinners over to their sin. God judges us by handing us over to have sin as our master and oppressor. We want to sin, so God gives us what we want. He gives us over to sin. And in one sense, though, we can hardly complain, can we? Because actually that's what we wanted. We wanted to reject God, we wanted to sin, so God hands us over to sin. 
Sin, capital S, results in slavery to sin. And that then, as we're going to see, results in sins. We can see it as a terrible cycle of increasing sin. So cycle one that we read, what's the sin? Well, they exchange the glory of God for creatures. Harks back to our first point, doesn't it? The idea of swapping God for something else. This is a root sin, if you like. Sin with a capital S. Now, we might think he's having a go at the pagan nations, and some people think that's what this whole passage is about. But actually, Israel did this too. So, Psalm 106, verses 19 to 20. It's there on the back of your sheet. This is talking about Israel. They made a calf in Horeb and and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God, note the same language, for the image of an ox that eats grass. So actually, even though this is having a go at the pagan nations in a way, Israel are guilty of the same thing. And actually, we're guilty of the same thing too, aren't we? De-godding God and replacing him with less than God. Living for things that aren't at God. What's the penalty? Well, we see in verse 24 that God gives them up to the lusts of their heart. Lust here is more neutral than we might think as a word. Elsewhere in Romans it's translated as covetousness or passions or desires. Basically the word means what your heart burns for. It's got the idea of burning in it. Now it might be sexual, but it's not by itself. That word lust, it doesn't always mean that. But it takes on more of that tone with impurity and the dishonouring of our bodies among ourselves. That's the result of this being handed over to that. So the result is there in 24 as well, the dishonouring of our bodies. Bringing shame upon ourselves and themselves, performing shameful acts that their hearts yearn for. You can imagine that Paul sees this as he writes this letter. We didn't mention this last week, but he's probably writing this from Corinth, which was renowned for its hedonism and sexual impurity. He's got these Greeks going around him claiming to be wise, claiming to be uh, full of wisdom, and yet acting like fools. Swapping God for lifeless statues and abandoning themselves to destructive, uh, the destructive vida loca. So what we see really is this sort of cycle, a sort of Exchanging God, glory of God for creatures. So God gives them up to the lust of their hearts. The result is dishonouring of their bodies. The second cycle follows the same pattern. What's the sin? Well, let's have a look at verse uh, 25 to 27. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonourable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. What we see in the second cycle is the sin there is exchanging truth for a lie. Again, it's a swap, isn't it? Just like they swapped the creator for other things... Here they're swapping truth for a lie, and then swapping creator for creature. This is again sin uh, in the singular, it's the root sin. What's the penalty? Well, they're given over to dishonourable passions. 
Now that might sound similar language to the first cycle, but here it's stronger than just the desires of their hearts. It's dishonourable passions, broken passions. Uh, This word is different from lusts uh, earlier, the passions, and it's always used negatively in the Bible. So this would show itself in all sorts of different ways, being handed over to these dishonourable passions. But Paul just picks out one, and not necessarily for the reasons that you might think. So hang on for a little bit. What's the result? I'm going to show you the full table now. The result is exchange of unnatural relations, sorry, natural relations, for unnatural ones. Now what I'm going to say next is quite, I'm going to be quite precise in what I say. Not because I'm uh, not so I'm missing anything out or anything like that. There's not some secret subtexts. But um, we've got to be quite careful exactly what we say about these things. And I want to say first off that there's no place for homophobia or snide jokes or comments. This is not what we want isn't a return to the 1970s, is it? It's not where we're going. But let me state really carefully what this is and isn't saying. First of all, it's talking about orient... Uh, sorry, it's not talking... There we go, that's a good start, isn't it? It's not talking about orientation. It's talking about practice. It is not sinful to have a homosexual orientation. We all live in a fallen world and all of us struggle with all sorts of different temptations. But to be tempted in a particular direction is not in itself sinful. Whether we are heterosexual or homosexual in orientation, all of us are equally capable of dishonourable passions, as Paul talks about it there. William Hendrickson, a Bible commentator, said, A person's sexual orientation, whether heterosexual or homosexual, is not the point at issue. What matters is what a person does with his sexuality. So it's homosexual practice that's in view here. And interestingly, that's equally for women and for men. In Paul's day, there were lots of literature written about the evil of sort of certain types of, uh, of these things. But here, actually, Paul is treating both men and women equally. But it's not just one particular act here. Because if we include women, then there are certain things that it broadens out the categories of what we're talking about. But it means all kinds of sexually orientated acts with one another. That's what it's talking about, the practice of homosexuality, not the orientation of homosexuality. Now the world doesn't make or often understand this distinction. Because in our culture, the idea of not seeking to fulfil every aspect of yourself is almost the, the unforgivable sin in our culture. Self-denial, as the Bible calls us to, is totally alien to lots of people. The separation of desire and fulfilment, orientation and action, is something that we need to take time to carefully explain to our culture. So it's talking here about practice, not about orientation. The second thing it's, uh, it's not saying is it's not saying that homosexual sin is more sinful than heterosexual sin. It's not picked because it's worse, it's picked because it exemplifies the exchange that we've been talking about. Exchanging someone from the opposite sex for someone of the same sex. It shows you the swap that we make with every sin. Every sin we choose the bad over the good, don't we? But here it's really stark. But it's not saying that illicit gay sex 
is worse than illicit heterosexual sex. And before we start pointing fingers, we need to think, well, am I sexually pure? People who criticise homosexuals, do you look at porn? Do you make snide comments about gay people? Do you fantasise about people other than your husband or wife? Have you let your eyes or mind wander to places where they shouldn't go? If you don't have a husband or wife, have you ever done that with anyone, whether straight or gay? We need to be very careful about pointing fingers. And it's a point that Paul is going to make next week, but I want to make it now, here, that we need to be careful about pointing the finger, because actually, we are as guilty in in areas that are similar to this, aren't we? So what is it saying? It is saying, however, that homosexual practice is sinful, as is all sexual practice outside of marriage. Again, whether homosexual or heterosexual. And that means whether it's a series of hedonistic one-night stands or a long-term loving relationship, the Bible still defines it as sin. Does that mean we're to hate gay people, picket their funerals, ban them from our meetings? Not for a second. The Bible commands us to love all people, regardless of their background. The Bible is not hate speech, as some people want to make it, but love speech. So we do not picket their funerals. We do not ban them from our meetings. Because if we start banning sinners from our meetings, then we'd all have to go home, wouldn't we? Yeah? So let's be clear here. The Bible says that homosexual practice is wrong, but it doesn't single it out as a worse sin than any other. It's not the unforgivable sin. Paul is writing from Corinth, where this was common practice. And this is what he wrote to them in 1 Corinthians 6. Again, you'll find it on the back of your notice sheets. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Some people around Paul, as he's writing this, have this inclination. And here they are, in the kingdom of God, washed clean by the blood of Jesus. So it will mean big changes for their life, but it does not put people like this beyond the reaches of God's grace. There is one gospel, and it's for all people, regardless of their background. But what does it mean about receiving in themselves the due penalty for their sin? Do you notice that? It's a bit of a strange phrase. Back in Romans uh, 1. There's lots of harmful and hurtful rubbish written about this, actually, when you start reading by people calling themselves Christians. It's not talking about AIDS. It's not talking about HIV. That's ridiculous nonsense. Those things weren't even around in those days. It's not talking about high suicide and depression rates among homosexual people, as though it's their fault and they had it coming to them. Let me explain by analogy taking it out of the moral spectrum altogether, what it means to receive in itself the the penalty for our sins. Let me talk about fashion crimes. This is really out of the sphere, isn't it? I was trying to think of something that would illustrate it. Uh, Does anyone know what this is? A fashion crime. (laughs) Yes. 
Um, it's known as a flock of seagulls. It was around in the 80s. What's the punishment for having a flock of seagulls haircut? Well, it's that you have a flock of seagulls haircut. It, it's something that might, that might seem, in other circumstances, to be unthinkable. So it's not talking about the ridicule you might get for it, but the fact in yourself, this is what you've done. The crime and the punishment are the same. It's not some extra punishment that God adds on top, because this is somehow worse. As I've said before, this just exemplifies the change very well. And in itself, it is the punishment for the sin. Swapping something good for something that's not good. The natural way, for, uh, the way that God intended, for the unnatural, not as God intended. And then we come to cycle three. What's the sin? Well, let's have a look at verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. What's the sin? Well, they don't acknowledge God. Literally, it means they did not look with approval of keeping God in their knowledge. That's why we don't do a literal translation from the Greek, isn't it? But as one commentator put it, they did not think God worth knowing. That's what it really means. And since they did not think God worth keeping in their mind, God gave them over to a debased mind that doesn't want God. And since they didn't approve of knowing God... God gave them over to an unapproved mind, literally. That's what it means. And that's the penalty. We have a jailbroken brain, if you're into phones. This idea of uh, it's not approved anymore. It's free to invent its own evil. And when the brain and the mind is left to itself, boy, it does. The result of a mind unrestrained by God and against God is incredible. Paul gives us a list of 21 ways that this works out in verses 29 to 30. Now, I haven't got time for an explanation for each one, or we'd be here all morning and probably into the afternoon. But it starts and ends with more general ones. Unrighteousness, evil, foolishness, faithless, heartless, ruthless. It covers our thought life, covetousness, malice, envy. It deals with our speech, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slander. It deals with our attitude to authority, Insolent, disobedient to parents. It deals with our attitude to ourselves. Haughty, boastful. And it's nicely summed up really by two of those phrases, if nicely is the right word there. Haters of God and inventors of evil. Haters of God and inventors of evil. That sums up the human heart without God's influence. It hates God and it spends its time inventing evil. Once it's handed over, it's like an explosion goes off. It's like Pandora's box is opened and now our hearts and our minds show their true colours. If we are in any doubt that our species is sick, then we can see now that the medicine is taken away. Now the symptoms can leave us in no doubt to our sickness. 
The early church fathers commented on this, thought that this was a mercy to us, making us aware that we are sick so that we actually seek after a cure. Some do, some don't. But wherever you find human society, you find these things, don't you? That we've got listed here. If you walk around Otley, if you walk around Ilkley, you'll find these things, yeah? If you go around somewhere. But you might be thinking, this isn't me, is it? Somebody else is doing these things. But are we really totally innocent of these things? We need to take a serious look at ourselves if we've never done so before. And ask ourselves, am I part of the solution? Or am I part of the problem? As Coldplay put it in one of their songs, am I part of the cure? Or am I part of the disease? I think in this room this morning, the tendency will be to excuse ourselves. We're not exactly what I imagine that Paul has got in mind as he writes in verse 32. They know God's righteous decree, though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. I reckon that we probably don't think we're in that category this morning. Well, don't worry, our time will come. Often I think the only reason that we might approve of these things is that actually it makes ourselves feel not so bad. We look at these people and go, oh, that's a problem out there, but I'm okay. But wait for next week, wait for next verse. But we do live in a culture that is proud of sin and approves of others doing so. Apart from the obvious things like gay pride events, there is a sort of this is me mentality. A, a positive sense to it. Uh, sorry, there is a positive sense to it, isn't there? God made us uh, an amazing, wonderful diversity of people. And the fact that we're different is something to celebrate, isn't it? But there's also that sort of attitude called, you know, I'm a gossip and I don't care, that's just me. I'm grumpy, um, get over it. You know, this is me. You can do whatever you want as long as you're true to yourself, however sinful and wicked yourself is. That's what our culture thinks. And all this leaves us with four huge problems. This is shorter than the other sections. Four huge problems. We're going to, we've got four pieces of bad news, we're going to deal with them backwards. The first is our guilt. In one sense, this is our last problem. But it's what we face in the day to day. We sin, and we sin in all sorts of different ways. We do it willingly. We're not dragged to it kicking and screaming, are we? If we're this kind of person that he's talking about here, we not only do these things, but we approve of others doing them. In certain circumstances, we celebrate our sinfulness. Or at very least, we minimise it. Well, here is the first piece of bad news. We are guilty before God, the Holy Judge. If we faced him by ourselves, we would be declared guilty and sentenced to eternity in hell. That's bad news, isn't it? If we're to have any hope of life or a future, we need our guilty verdict overturned somehow. We cannot hope of any sort of relationship with God while we stand before him guilty. We need our guilt dealt with. But there's seemingly nothing we can do. And that's partly because of our huge second problem, our enslavement. So we had our guilt, our enslavement. We've been judicially handed over to God. We wanted sin, so sin is now our master. 
we are in slavery to sin. And this is more bad news, because even if our guilt was dealt with, we'd still be under the power of sin. Sin would still be our master. So, we are slaves to sin, and we've got no way to free ourselves. We're willing slaves. Summed up quite well with a couple of songs I heard this week. Um, oh, I forgot who it is now. Who's he, eh? I was born, uh, taken to church. I was born sick, but I love it. Or Alice Cooper, your poison running through my bra- brains. Veins, but I don't want to break these chains. That's what we've got, haven't we? Or think of Gollum in Lord of the Rings. A slave to the ring, but he loves the ring, and he won't let it go. And spoiler alert, he's even prepared to die with it, even if it costs him his life. So second bit of bad news is that we're slaves, and we're not even looking to break free. Third bit of bad news, God's righteous anger. So our guilt, our enslavement, God's righteous anger. The third problem, huge problem that we've got, because of what we've seen in this passage, is that we are facing God's righteous anger at our rebellion against him. God is angry. And this is an angry, an angriness, an, an anger that we can never exhaust in ourselves. Sin is such a huge deal that God's anger at it is a huge deal too. An eternity of hell will not exhaust God's anger at our sin. We don't get that because we don't realise what a huge deal sin is. And this is bad news. How can we ever hope to have any hope in this world or the next if God is angry at us? To flip a famous phrase on its head, if God is against us, who can be for us? Even if we could somehow escape our guilty verdict, even if we could somehow free ourselves from slavery to sin, the root problem is still there. We've offended God and he's rightly angry at us. If we're to have any future, we need something or someone to deal with God's wrath, God's anger. Without this, the cycle would just begin all over again and we would multiply our guilt before him. So what we really need is a solution that deals with all of this, our guilt, our enslavement and God's righteous anger. But who could devise a plan so wise and clever that it would deal with all three at the same time? Who could do this without compromising God's justness or in any way part of his character? Friends, we have such a way, but we're not quite there yet in Romans. Let me give you a sneak preview though. It's God's plan and we call it the gospel, the good news. And as we saw last week, it's all about Jesus. But we have one more problem to deal with this week, which I've just termed the other problem. The other problem that we have is that we don't think that we have a problem. All the way through, I don't know if you noticed, this is worded, they are, they are this, they are full of this. And we're prone to agree, aren't we? Yes, they are. The problem is that God's wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, us included. So if you should, if you're starting to think this isn't me, you should remember that this is just the start of what Paul is doing. In the coming weeks, he's coming for all of us who think that when things aren't so bad, that the ship will actually sink. Or that we think that actually we're good enough that we can swim to shore. He's going to show us that all of us need God's grace. From the prostitute to the policeman, 
from the cineholic to the school teacher, from the drug dealer to the dentist. We all need a lifeboat. But praise God that he's given us one in Jesus, his only son, to make a wretch his treasure. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the gospel. Father, thank you that it is the diamond that shines out all the more brightly against the blackness of what we've seen in our passage this morning. Father, help us to love Jesus all the more for what he's rescued us from. And Father, help us to realise that we are included here, Father, that we are sinners. And that we are great sinners, but that we have a great saviour. Amen.